everyone, I'm Jasmine Jom and welcome to Inside Intercom. Earlier today, we launched AnswerBot, an intelligent bot that automatically answers your customers' common questions, improving your team's time to first response and freeing them up to handle more complex issues that only humans can tackle. Think of it as a way to expand your customer support beyond human limits. On average, AnswerBot instantly resolves 29% of customers' most common questions, and you can set your first answer live in just five minutes. Check it out on our website, intercom.com. AnswerBot is the latest feature powered by a conversational automation technology operator, which we've developed over the years to help businesses make personal connections at every step of the customer lifecycle. What does that look like in real life? Well, if you use live chat on your website, when someone comes to your site and your team is offline or unavailable, operator can launch task bots to ask the person to leave their email address so you can get back to them at a later time. No more misconnections with potential customers. Operator also powers custom bots, which are bots you can easily build to qualify potential customers checking out your website and then route them to the best person on your sales team. If it isn't clear by now, we're all in when it comes to building and shipping thoughtful ways to automate workflows for our customers and unlock business growth for them. A lot of our thinking on automation and chatbots has been informed by conversations we've had with experts in the field over the last few years, some right here on this podcast. So today we thought we'd share some of the most thought-provoking discussions we've had on these topics. In the next half hour, you'll hear excerpts from our interviews with these experts. Microsoft's VP of AI and Research, Lily Cheng, author and expert on conversational design, Erica Hall, Intercom's own machine learning expert, Fergal Reed, and founder of a fast-growing sales software company, Steli Afti. They tackle questions like whether conversational automation will replace your sales or support team, what automated interactions with your users should look like, and how to go about assessing whether conversational automation is right for your business. If you like this episode and want to check out the full interviews, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Let's dive in. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. First up, we'll hear from Microsoft's VP of AI and Research, Lily Cheng, in conversation with Adam Risman. You might have come across headlines proclaiming the death of jobs and humans as evil robot workers replace them. But we think this is a false trade-off. We think conversational automation will augment support and sales jobs rather than replace them. It will help these teams scale their expertise and focus their time where it matters most. Let's listen to Lily explain how she sees chatbots working alongside humans. In general, I think there's sort of this conception of like, oh, this, all this technology is built to replace something. But I, I think in the case of, of business, there really is a, a case of this type of technology and people working hand in hand and, and stepping in where where one maybe uh, isn't the most efficient answer, like say the support example that you mentioned, or even someone that's just on the sales side, trying to do some light investigation into, into a product. And there's a lot of sort of quick, repetitive answers and things like that that aren't the best use of, of a person's time. How do you see humans and, and bots coexisting? I see them one in the same system. So one of the most common things that we have people add to a bot is they, we call it a person in the loop, mm -hmm. which means that um, typically when you build an AI system, especially for a company, 
often you're trying to do something really specific for your company. So unlike, you know, a company like Microsoft or, you know, Amazon or Google, you might not have tons and tons of data around your customer interactions because you're trying to just sell an insurance policy or, you know, get somebody, you know, help with their medical process or whatever it is. And you don't have a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that's really important is you're building a conversational experience is to not have the technology that you can lead with limit what a user does. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you launch an AI service and it can only do one thing mm -hmm. and it doesn't do anything else at all, you might not learn what your customers really want. And you might be teaching your customers, hey, we only do, you know, this one limited thing. And typically people will ask for a wider variety of things. So we really encourage companies to, you know, gather up what your either your system can't do, or if it can't do something, hand it off to a person who can make sure that you don't really lose a customer in that experience. And so I think, you know, people are really great at new things, ambiguous things, um, complex problems. And we really think that pairing bots that can do repetitive tasks initially um, that can solve a lot of simple problems um, that people have are really important to, to, you know, to pair that with employees and workers who, who can do more complex and interesting things. Absolutely. And, and, and really thinking back to a few years ago, some of the early use cases here, I think one place where maybe say around 2016, where chatbots got a lot of criticism, maybe they fell flat, is just because they were very general purpose. Have you seen these applications become more, more people focused? How are these things trending? Um, I think people are, well, it's interesting. So early on, if you go all the way back to 1995, mm -hmm. you know, the stuff we were talking about early on, I think one of the things that we learned was we were just early. So consumers really weren't used to chatting. Yeah. And, you know, they, they barely had email accounts or, you know, the internet was, was pretty slow back then. And so the people who were chatting online were really a small segment of, you know, people, communicating. Mm -hmm. So that's been one of the biggest changes. I think today, pretty much anyone who, you know, has a phone gets text messages and, you know, people are used to feeds and communication, email, obviously instant messaging. You can't really imagine life without these tools today. So, um, although they're really popular, I think people aren't necessarily used to communicating with businesses Absolutely. in these tools. And so I do think you know, there's probably for you, I know it was true for me, there's like some experience that changes your mind where you go, wow, that that was just awesome. That totally um, saved me time or that experience was so much better. And that change encourages you to try others and use them more and more. And I think you're going to see that a lot with conversational experiences. The benefits of using conversational automation technology like chatbots to free up your team's time and increase efficiency is clear. But where this automation has fallen short in the past and has made businesses hesitant to adopt it is with the poor user experience they provided. We've all seen our share of poorly designed bots that are unable to hold up their end of the conversation and turn out to be more frustrating than helpful. The efficiency gains from chatbots are useless if they end up costing you customers and users. One discipline that has spent a lot of time thinking about how chatbot interactions can be improved is the field of content design. Content designers are responsible for the words your users see in your product and make sure that the language helps your users use your product effectively. 
When it comes to chatbot interactions, content designers think deeply about something they call conversational design, a design that mimics a human conversation. Erica Hall, co-founder of Mule Design, was one of the pioneer thinkers on chatbot conversational design. She talks with Adam about what effective chatbot conversations and interactions look like. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book, particularly early on, is you spilt on this principle that conversation is actually the original interface, which, when you think about it, makes total sense. So what is it about conversation that you feel like is being lost today when you're interacting with the digital experience? What are like the core principles that maybe we've lost sight of over time? I think one of the the really key principles is the idea of having a shared goal, because that's one of the things that makes conversation work between or among people. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a miracle when you think, you know, you think really people are intelligent systems walking around and you can't directly see what's in somebody else's mind. But as long as you speak the same language, you can very quickly exchange information with them. Like if you're in a strange city and you walk up to somebody on the street, you can ask them for directions. And there's kind of a protocol that makes that possible. You know, there's a there's conventional phrases we use. Like there's kind of a tacit agreement that it's okay to make that request. Like if you walked up to somebody on the street corner in New York and you ask them how to get to the Empire State Building, I don't think anybody would be appalled or think it was strange for you to do that. It would be, oh, that's that's an totally okay thing. And you think, well, what makes it work? What makes it okay to walk up to any stranger and ask them that question, but perhaps not ask them another question, like not ask them a personal question? Like there are all of these unspoken rules. And if we look at what's beneath those and say, okay, well, how do we have a system that makes it very clear, well, here's what the system allows you to do. Here's what's okay to do. Here's what won't work. And to really think about how you establish that kind of a a sense of a shared goal, because that's really what makes conversation work. If you were to ask somebody for directions and they were to spin off into another tangent and sort of talk about uh, architectural history, that would be strange and antisocial, and you would never expect somebody to do that. And that would almost be like a hostile act. You know, if you were like, wow, I need to get to my friend's office. They're in the Empire State Building. Can you show me that direction? If that person were to waste your time, uh, you'd think, wow, that was that was some sort of like violation. And that was actually kind of rude. But there are so many digital systems that do that, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the system with an intent and that system diverts you, whether with advertising or giving you irrelevant information or not giving you the basic information you need to have a successful interaction. So it's really looking at why can it be so comfortable to interact with people and so much less comfortable to interact with computers? And how can we make that more like a good interaction with another person? Because now we're interacting with computers for things we used to interact with with people for, like even ordering a pizza. I think the directions example is is really interesting because there's something that you didn't explicitly say there, but that's heavily implied and that's trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, you're trusting that this, this person that you are making eye contact with and asking for help is going to guide you in the right direction. I think that's something that's particularly relevant today when we have digital systems that we work with for our finances, for Mm -hmm. healthcare. I mean, all these things that are incredibly sensitive. Yeah, Absolutely. And the idea that a system would not give you 
what you need in the same way, you know, somebody, a resident of a city would help a tourist. But there are a lot of, a lot of systems that kind of violate those principles and not even intentionally so often. But I think because the like designers and developers and writers don't think about it like that, we still, even to this day, even with all this talk about human-centered design, we're still designing in a very device-centered way. We still think screens first. And even when we think about having voice interactions, we're still really thinking like interacting with the device first, rather than really saying, let's set aside whatever hardware, whatever software, and just think about what kind of exchange is going to happen between the system and the individual person, customer, user, human. And that's an area where, you know, a great example is Mint.com, the financial services company that really invested in a fantastic name. And they had to pay for that domain. I know they had to pay a lot of money for it, but I think that was a part, it was like the centerpiece of their whole design system that involved, you know, minty green colors and really human language. And it really all turned on making that critical product choice of their name up front. So let's say five years from now, if there's something that someone might say, you know, I did this this way and it's because I read conversational design, what are you hoping people will do or think about differently as a result of reading this book? Oof. I would say focus less on, like think less that the value is in the interface and more on what actual value is in the system. So improvements in conversational design are helping businesses take a second look at chatbots and consider how they can be used to improve efficiency while preserving a positive, consistent customer experience. Another reason why chatbots are regaining ground is due to advances in machine learning technology, which is making chatbots more versatile and capable of handling different user scenarios and workflows. Late last year, Intercom's co-founder, Des Trainer spoke with machine learning expert, Fergal Reed about the progress he's seeing in the field, as well as the gaps that still need to be closed. Let's listen in. When you were talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, you said on a machine learning piece that like there's some things that we're actually surprisingly good at now. There are some problems are now like probably more solvable than, than they were, say, like in 2000 or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's true. It's very real. It's very exciting. So, I mean, one great example of this is is computer vision. For, right. for you know, generations, people were, you know, coding algorithms almost by hand, coding things to detect uh, features of an image. Oh, there's a straight line here. Or there's an edge there. And, and, and trying to detect these things in a, in a very manually coded way to try and recognize, oh, there's a bicycle in this picture or there's a bird in that picture. And, you know, the success was was just never really quite what we wanted. It was it was always easy to produce a compelling demo, but hard to produce a system that, that you know, worked and put in the wild and you could ship. And, and I think in the last sort of five years or so, we, we've really crossed a threshold there in computer vision of, you know, we now have acceptable accuracy. You can ship Google Photos with a built-in object recognizer to... 100 million smartphones and you know most of the time it just works there's there's hiccups there's there's problems but it's we were it sort of hit this this acceptable error bar for the yeah. end user and uh, that's obviously been one huge success story 
Another, I think, big success story has been in, in things like audio recognition and natural language translation. And what all these success stories, I think, have in common is that we're much better at understanding unstructured data, data where things aren't nicely labeled and classified, data that looks like a big image full of pixels mm -hmm. or a big sound file full of, of bits and bytes. Uh, we're much better at kind of at taking this unstructured data and, and turning it into structure than we were sort of five years ago. And right. I think this is because of something called people call deep learning, which is, uh, I mean, you could talk about it as a, a breakthrough machine learning technology that's enabling this, or equally, you could talk about it as an old machine learning technology that's, you know, finally come good. We finally have enough computation power and, you know, good, good techniques to kind of t to really realize its potential. Is there then like a prototypical example of a problem where we're still struggling? Like if, if you're saying, um, let's say like, you know, image recognition or, or vision in general is, is a good area. Is there a corresponding area where like we have yet to really make a dent? Like obviously... I'm well aware of like the successes in things like chess or Go. And then, as you said, just said, stuff like Google Photos is a productized application of like deep learning as applied to machine vision. But um, if you take, say, something that can talk like a human or react like a human or like, you know, are, are there areas right. or problem domains where it's like, you know what, that's still on the on the distant time horizon? Yeah, I mean, I, I OK, so that, that's fair. There's a, there's a lot of domains we haven't yet cracked. So it, it's one thing to look at, you know, unstructured data where you have 100 million photos and over time you learn to recognize the objects in them. But I mean, this, this huge amount of things we're not even close to yet, it seems. And you touched on something there like, you know, synthesis, like speech generation or like open domain conversation. So yeah. talking to a chatbot where the chatbot generates uh, fully natural responses for you in the way that, if you know, if you talk to a, another human about a topic, they're going to respond, they're going yeah. to talk to you. Uh, we're definitely not at the stage where we have, you know, a, a system that's intelligent, that can hold yeah. the context of a conversation and that can just kind of have that conversation right. with and you. And the distinction you're drawing there is like generates versus selects from a pre-configured answer bank, right? Which is the more like the more classical chatbot is like, oh, well, let me pull answer 1.8 and, and spit that out. You're saying actually create and conceive and return an answer that's appropriate. Yeah, well, exactly. We're not yet at the, at the level where we have anything that requires sort of a general understanding of, of a domain. We're, we're not really there yet. So right. we, 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 have, we have very powerful techniques for taking, you know, unstructured data and, and kind of compressing that down to a simple representation that we can then use to say, oh, you know, this looks like a cow or this looks like a dog or this looks like the word hello. Yeah. But, you know, that, 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 that's a very, it's a very limited, constrained mm -hmm. task. It's something that kind of requires any sort of a, a contextual understanding, which is, right. you know, basically we, there's a small number of problems for which we have figured out good solutions. Yeah. And, you know, a much, much larger number of problems probably for which we, we, we're still we're not anywhere close to solving. It's interesting as well to think about the different people involved in the creation of, of like a piece of AI, because like there are some people for whom like, hey, if this works 10% of the time, that's a win, right? Like as in, if we can, you know, correctly infer like that, like a customer is going to be profitable for us, like one in 10 times, that might be in and of itself useful and extra signal that we should pull in. There are other cases where you're like, hey, I want to replace all my customer facing staff with this piece of thing, in which case... You know, you might do the wrong calculus. You might be like, hey, this thing gets it right 51% of the time and kind of be blind to the fact that 49% of your customers are now having a horrible experience or whatever. It seems like there are these like sort of like perceptual cliffs that you can cross where like, 
there's like good enough such that it's like it's cost effective for the business to release it into the wild and good enough such that the user actually has a good experience. And I'm worried that maybe like those two bars might be actually quite far apart in some sense, right? Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a couple of really interesting things to unpack there. Uh, one thing is that, you know, there's a product development kind of tactics question here, which is what products should you choose to ship? And if you're trying to ship a machine learning product, you really want to ship one where there's a good tolerance for occasionally getting things wrong. And yeah. An example of this would be, Google relatively recently shipped these smart replies for Gmail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they unobtrusively at the bottom of your email provide these suggested replies. If one of the replies isn't very good, it doesn't matter. If one Mm -hmm. of the replies is good, the user clicks on it and saves some time. That's a really nice way to deploy a machine learning product rather than say, oh, it's going to respond on your behalf, right? We're going to answer your emails on your behalf because then the accuracy bar is is, is way higher. Yeah, it's like 0% near enough, right? Because if this thing is going to speak on my behalf, (laughs) it can't make a mistake. Exactly. Whereas if you're going to suggest things I should say, then yeah, suggest away. And like worst case, I'll just never use it. Right? Exactly. And so so I, I think uh, successful machine learning products are about picking your battles really carefully mm-hmm. and about uh, choosing to kind of to ship something where, you know, just the nature of the product, there'll be a high tolerance for occasional error. And, yeah. you know, even if you want to ship something that completely does something on the user's behalf, initially shipping it as something that will assist the user, assist yeah. the user's workflow, always get that manual approval yeah. is, is is a great way to do it. And so, yeah, so I think I think the que- your original question about what's the bar for yeah. kind of success of this, it depends on the product. And right. a good product manager, I think, has to be very thoughtful about trying mm-hmm. to ship pieces that have that affordance, that basically right. have that robustness to occasional bad behavior. So that's a really interesting trait. Like it strikes me that like if we were to, like, to find like a very, a project or a piece of product feature that's like, really well positioned to make use of these technologies a simple requirement will be that it should augment but not replace anything that exists today so as in if you can make things easier for the user simplify things reduce things to a click but don't click on their behalf if you know what i mean you probably also want something where you're going to have enough data to learn from is that right or i mean just just on on the first point there i think that that's a fair summary like there's occasional provisos right i mean our domain is 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 relatively good for this yeah Uh, something like self-driving cars people speculate that there's there's an uncanny valley or sort of a a a cliff here where if it's good but not perfect Mm -hmm. it's actually worse than if it just doesn't work at all right Right. because you know it lulls the user into a false sense of security if if all they have to do is click and approve and so I mean yeah like it depends on the domain there's a full spectrum here but uh, but I think that's generally fair yeah So we've heard how advances in machine learning and improvements in conversational design are paving the path for chatbots to help businesses get more efficient and provide better smarter user experiences This might all seem a bit too abstract, though, so let's consider a more practical example. Let's take a look at how chatbots can be used in sales. Earlier this year, we spoke with Steli Efti, who's the founder of a popular inside sales CRM software called Close.io. We got his take on how chatbots can be used to qualify sales leads and how businesses can evaluate their impact. When it comes to qualification and that idea of of, of listening and listening deeper, at the same time, we have chatbot experiences coming into play. We have messengers on sites where you have a higher volume of leads, making it easier to get in touch. Um, Automation is great. At the same time, there's a lot of human aspects that simply can't be replaced in this puzzle. 
How do you see these technologies coming into play here? And, and what's your advice in terms of how to best incorporate them without maybe being over-reliant on them? Yeah, my, my biggest recommendation there would be, uh, number one, people should try this, right? They should try having chat technology on their website, on their app. They should try automating some of it. But they should really be focused on not just tracking the numbers, but really tr looking at these things as experiments that need to be evaluated at a 360 angle. And what I mean by that is, if I put, let's say, if I have a website that has a lot of traffic and some kind of a form that someone could fill out to, to request a demo, and now, boom, I have this the, a chat window and people can ask some questions. So maybe there's some qualification process going on where the chatbot is asking, you no, know, please select how big is your team and like answer a few questions yeah. and then it prompts me to a demo or not or whatever. When you try this out, I think it's really important to a track the numbers b but also check in with the sales team and you know a month later or so and say hey the the leads that we sent you through the chatbot or through the chat window how were they different from the leads that come through the form have you seen any kind of quality issues as that like interrupted your workflow because of the way that we send them your way like just understanding how the sales team feels about this and what kind of stories they have to tell but also coming at it from a from a visitor angle where you actually you know, query or survey people that visit your website and left um, on how their experience was with the chat, right? Or with the chatbot specifically. Because I heard this many, many times where, where people go to sites and they interact with a chat widget and a bot and they're not happy with it. And I had this experience myself where I'm like, this is actually not making me like you more, but actually <laughs> making me like the brand less. And, and to me, it's not the chat window or the bot necessarily. It's the way it's implemented. Mm -hmm. My number one thing is that a lot of times we as an industry, we get overly excited about a new technology. We think, well, if we use this new technology, then all our problems will be solved, right? And then we are maybe simple. not as, we're not as mindful about the implementation of the software, right? So we're like, oh, a B testing software is out. That's going to solve all our problems. Nobody's converting on our website. Let's just use an A B testing tool and all our problems will be solved. Well, no. Because you don't have your value proposition figured out, you don't have your ideal customer figured out, your traffic is really poor. So no matter how many A-B tests you run, you have fundamental issues that optimization is not what you're trying to do here on a specific landing page. The same thing goes for many other things, right? Chatbots being the new thing or AI, attach, attaching AI to anything in SaaS, being like the thing that everybody's like, well, this is surely going to solve all our problems. No, it's not, right? It is a tool. And in the right context, if you use the tool in the right way, it might be great for you. It might help tremendously. And it might not. It might not make a big difference. You have to test it to figure it out. But I see too many chat apps, too many bots implemented in a way that's not thoughtful and then generating results that are not successful. So that will be my... I think that the, those tools are awesome. They help with increasing hopefully customer intimacy, which is a, a thing that I care deeply about and I think is is how to succeed and win in business in the marketplace. But I would also warn from people to get just overly excited about the tool. The tool is never going to save you. The tool or technology is never going to make your business successful or not. You're missing a tool is never the reason why something is working. A tool can always advance or improve something that's already working but it usually will not fix something that's broken. So keeping that in mind and being really mindful of how you implement these tools, I think is, the, is really, really crucial. So there you have it. Four takes from four experts on where conversational automation is headed and how chatbots can unlock business growth.
The thing that struck me from these interviews with Steli, Fergal, Erica and Lily is their firm belief in automation's power to help you connect with prospects and customers. When done in a thoughtful way that maximizes your team skill set and respects your users' time. That's the fundamental belief that we at Intercom have taken to heart and incorporated into the design of our operator technology and chatbot products. If you're ready to give them a try and see how they can help your business connect with more customers in a positive, meaningful way, head to intercom.com operator. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.